The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. We are going to do something different and not read a psalm today. I'm going to take you to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to go to chapter 52, starting in verse 13. And I'll give you a second to uh, turn there if you have a Bible, and that way we can, uh, we can kind of follow along and you can compare the words that are a little different in some versions. Um, yeah, 52, starting in verse 13, and I'm going to take you all the way through Isaiah 53. So, okay, here we go. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Now remember, as I'm reading this, think of this. This was written 700 years before Christ. And we know this. They have documents that they have found, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate Christ. And it is in there. Okay? There's no doubt that, that this was written. There's Before I go on, I'm, I'll tell you this right now. There is a video that you can watch on YouTube of some Messianic Jews, believers in Christ, living in Israel, they're, they're Israelis, and they go up to people and they have them read this passage. It's just printed off on a piece of paper. And they say, who is that speaking about? And they all know, all of them. They say, well, that's Jesus. And they say, do you know who wrote that? No, we have no idea. And they say, it's in your own writings. It's in the writings of Isaiah. And people are astonished when they hear that because they know who it's speaking of. So keep that in mind as we're reading this. Isaiah 52, starting in the 13th verse again. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut, shall shut their mouths at him. For what they had not been told, them they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed." We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living." For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, 
but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Before I start the uh, sermon today, I want to uh, thank somebody that's done a great work for us over the past couple of years, and he did a marvelous work this week, is a guy named Doug Callerson. He lives in Ireland, and he may be online right now if he is. Doug, we love you. He uh, does artwork for every sermon that I do uh, as we do them, sermon by sermon. He does a special piece of artwork for it, and if you want to see one of them, it's uh, on the wall back there. It's brought me to tears when I saw it, and he's done that a couple times. But uh, this week, he had an explosion of artistry in him, and he kept sending me artwork and artwork and artwork. So that you're not, you're not going to see this, but the people online, as I'm doing the sermon, will just keep putting all of the stuff that he sent to me online, and it means a great deal to me. He was really passionate about what Christ did, and when I told him that we're going to do this particular verse, he just he went crazy. Thank you, Doug. And this is entitled, uh, It is Finished. It's from John 19.30. When we finish something, it really isn't the end of what we hope for normally. Actually, it's more often than not the beginning. When I built our dinner table almost 23 years ago, I was excited about getting it done. All of the planning, the careful work, the cutting, the sanding, and the varnishing, all of that would have been for naught if I had finished and then set the thing on fire, unless a very time-consuming and costly bonfire was what I was hoping for all along. Rather, I spent all of that time making the thing so it would be ready as a present for my wife. And then, once that was out of the way, I mean hauling it into the house, placing it there while she was out, anticipating the look on her face, and all of the other things that go along with giving a present like that to someone, I mean once all of that was out of the way, then there would be another reason for having built the table, right? It was in hopes of using it for many years as a place where we could eat, sneak bits off the table for one of the dogs, place flowers, pay bills. I hate paying bills. Watch TV and on and on and on. And so finishing the table was really only the starting of what the work was intended for. At that table, we've had many wonderful gatherings. Some of you have been there on one of the uh, you know Christmas or Easter dinners we've had, and uh, we sit around the table and we talk about life and we celebrate in Jesus. And... Um, I've had my good friend Sergio and Rhoda there so many times I can't count it. And, uh, you know, when uh, we have a dinner, they're there. And then in the morning, they're there again. And they're reading the Bible together and talking about the scriptures that they're going through. And anybody that comes to the house, they just plop themselves right down. And I say that because it's a Japanese table. It's very low. And uh, you have to sit on the floor to eat at it. But uh, it's been a real, real pleasure having that table. And as I said, the same is true with most things. We finish school in order to get educated enough to get a job or to get accepted into another school. And when we finish our job, we retire. 
so that we can do the things that we couldn't do when we worked. Surely each time that we start a project, it is normally for the purpose of finishing it in order to do something else. I finished that table and it has been fulfilling its purpose for many, many years. I hope I die or I get raptured out of here before I have to move that thing. It is quite possibly the heaviest dinner table on planet Earth. I built it to last, and last it has. Eventually, though, it will come to its end, as all things do, all things except for that which is truly eternal. Our text verse comes from John 1, it's verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God began a project, too. All along, it was intended as something that would be eternal, But in order for that to be the case, there had to be something to bring it about. He knew before he ever created that if man was involved, that death would also be involved. But death implies an end, whereas eternity means that which is endless. If death was involved, it was because there was something imperfect which brought that death about. That imperfection is known as sin. In order for sin to be eradicated and for the imperfection to be removed, then there must be a process which is followed, a process which would involve another death. The difference is that this death would have to be a perfect one, not involving sin in the one who dies. God knew this, and his word calls Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is the project that God started, and this is the project which he finished through the work of Jesus Christ. But the finishing of the project was only meant as a new beginning, not the end. Like the table that has had another purpose than just being made into a table, the work of Jesus Christ, which ended with the words, it is finished, had an entirely different purpose behind it. It is a purpose which involves any and all who are willing to receive it by faith. And it is one which will last, yes, for all eternity. This is what we will see in today's Resurrection Day sermon, and it is a truth which is found in God's superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought of three thoughts today is, it has begun. Genesis chapter 1 gives us a broad brushstroke of creation, explaining in one chapter the order of what occurred, and the totality of God's creative effort. In other words, in just 31 verses, the Bible tells us that everything that we see in the universe around us came into existence by the wisdom and the power of God. And yet, the focus of all of this vast, marvelous creation is centered on one particular thing, the creation of man. How do we know this? Well, first, the Bible is written. Writing is information in a specific form and for a specific purpose. Inanimate objects don't need or use writing. Man does. Writing isn't used by animate objects apart from man either. The fact that the Bible exists shows us that what is presented in it is intended for man's use. Without man, there would be no need for a description of how creation occurred and thus no need for a Bible. Secondly, and with that first understanding as key to everything that will follow in all of this book that we call the Bible, there is a specific attention given to man in the first chapter of Genesis. In the creation of the physical universe, the earth where we live is specially highlighted. It is created, 
It is prepared in a particular way to receive life. The sun and the moon are singled out as being a necessary part of the interaction with the earth. And then in verse 16, the rest of the entire universe is lumped into just two Hebrew words, ve'et hakokhavim, and the stars. Those two words describe everything else that exists in the physical universe, but only those stars that are visible to man are considered as important enough to even mention. We know this because elsewhere in scripture, constellations are mentioned by name. A constellation is useful from only one vantage point. Any other point or any other planet in the universe will see those stars differently, and those constellations will not exist as we know them. Further, by calling the sun, which is also a star, the sun, it means that this particular star is one specifically prepared for the earth on which we live, an earth which is specifically made for man who is to be created on it. And so we again see the importance of man highlighted implicitly through this detail. And thirdly, as each day of creation is noted, it builds upon the previous days in order to reach a result. God carefully and methodically created with an intent and a purpose, which is to provide a place where man could dwell. Everything else was created for this purpose. The room was prepared and the guests were expected. Fourth, when the sixth and final day of creation arrived, God first created the living creatures according to their kind, the cattle and the creeping things. Upon completion of that, it says, and God saw that it was good. Everything was ready then for that last act of his creative efforts, man. The expected guest had his house waiting for him. Everything was set and ready. Only then do we read the exceedingly special words which follow from Genesis 1, starting in the 26th verse. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man, man alone bears a special garment that distinguishes him from all else in creation. He bears the image and likeness of God. It is to this image-bearer of the Creator that dominion of the earth was given. And then there is a fifth way of knowing that man is the central purpose of God's creation. It is because chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis insert the many details of man's creation and early moments on earth, which Genesis 1 left out. It is given to show specifically that the Bible is intended for man's knowledge of who he is in relation to his creator and how he arrived at the place that he is at now and that the Bible is the record of these things. After chapter 3, the narrative continues on in this exact same way for the next 1,186 chapters right up until the very last page and indeed until the very last word of the book of Revelation. And so, understanding this, and as our first thought of the day is, it has begun, we want to discern what, in fact, has begun. 
we have the creation. We have the knowledge that it centers on what God has done in the creation of man. And from chapter 2 of Genesis, it shows that man was intended to live in a paradisical setting where he could actually fellowship with his creator, the Lord God. After the creation of woman, who was intended to be a helper for the man, chapter 2 ends with the words, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. There was an innocence about them, which was, according to the word, very good, tov me'od in Hebrew. In this state of innocence, they were set to have a wonderful existence, which would keep them ever in the presence of the Lord and forever free from pains, trials, or sadness. But this marvelous existence would not last very long. Indeed, it would slip away from them just as the breath itself disappears as it is exhaled out on a cold morning. Without wasting any words, chapter 3 immediately introduces the serpent, the cunning deceiver who would bring an end to the innocence of man and the intimate fellowship that he enjoyed with the Lord. In a mere 24 verses, chapter 3 takes man from a state of innocence to a state of understanding. It takes him from a state of life to a state of death. It takes him from being in a paradise of abundance to expulsion and an exile to a place of hardship and toil. And worst of all, it takes him from intimate fellowship with the Lord to a state of enmity with him. When properly considered, it is truly, it is truly the most heartbreaking set of words ever penned about man because it describes how all of the other heartbreak of man began. And there's one more thing in the record which cannot go without note. It says that man became more, not less, like God in the process. This would seem like a good thing, but for the most part, it is not. Just before his expulsion from their garden of delight, we read these words. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Herefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. The man became like his creator in that he acquired the ability to know good and evil. But without the ability to properly use that knowledge, it is as much of a curse as it is a blessing. It may be good to know how to cut down a tree in order to build a house, but if we cut down too many trees, we might cause a mudslide which could come down upon the house that we've built. Each thing that we do may have unintended consequences. And so without knowing the end from the beginning... What is good in one instance may be bad in another. Until we learn from our mistakes, we often remain ignorant about what is truly good and what isn't. Unless we have external guidance from one who has already learned, or from the one who knows all things, we are prone to err. And when we err, evil is more often than not the result. But this is how it began. The life we live, the troubles we face, the lack of fellowship with God that we experience, all of it began because we didn't know what he asked of us in the first place. From that point, we were set on a course that we could not fix and which leaves us wandering aimlessly through one mistake after another. And this continues on until we lay our head down for the last time and return to the earth from which we came. Truly, it is a vain and hopeless existence when we don't have all of the information that we need to make the right choices. There is a curse upon us, a self-inflicted pain. Our father Adam broke God's command. It seems as if things will never be right again. 
and for his transgressions, our life, God will demand. But there at the beginning was a promise of one to come who would reverse the curse and right Adam's wrong. Whatever this one offers, I sure want me some. To the truth of his message, I wish to belong. Who will it be? How will it come about? The thing that he offers, I know I cannot do without. Our second thought today is it will be resolved. The end of chapter 3 of Genesis and all of the misery of the world since then should really make us wonder if going on is even worth the trouble. Why bother when all we get is older, more feeble, less respect, a lot of aching bones, and many sleepless nights? This would be the case if we didn't pay attention to the details of chapter 3 of Genesis. You see, right there in the middle of the chapter, there are a few words which, if understood, are enough to give even the most wearisome person hope. It was the serpent who got us into this mess. And if he could just be taken out of the way, things would turn out for good. And this is what was promised in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A promise was made that the cunning deceiver would be defeated. And when this was accomplished, man would have access once again to the paradise that he had lost. How do we know this is a correct reading of those words? Because it's implicitly stated from this point on. In a thousand different ways, the people of faith understood this. And the Bible records that their interpretation of it is correct. Restoration would come, and it would come when the seed of the woman arrived. From this point on, from chapter 4 of Genesis on, the story of this coming Redeemer takes shape. A select line of people are highlighted, and with each new page, the story continues to unfold. The select line are known as Bnei Ha Elohim, or Sons of the God. Those not in this line belong to Ha Adam, or the man. The distinction between the two comes down to what their life was directed to. Were they people of faith and the promise of God? Or were they men who followed in their first father's footsteps, trusting in the deceit of the deceiver? Eventually, it came down to a single man named Noah. The entire world had followed after the serpent, and God determined to put an end to what he saw. However, he had made a promise, and so he spared Noah and his family in order to keep this promise alive. God is ever faithful to his word. In the destruction of the world, Noah was kept safe, and together with his family, they arrived on the shore of a new world, one ready once again to allow man to flourish and to live out his days. Exercising his will in hope or in futility, the choice was his. And once again, in the mere turning of a page, there is rebellion, and there is the pronouncement of a curse. It seems that man is destined to self-ruin, But in the midst of the disobedient heart, God continues to work out his plan carefully and methodically. With the turning of one person or group, there's the calling of another. But it can't be said that one is better or more deserving than the other. Eventually, from Noah's son Shem, one of his descendants named Abraham was called. But he was called from one life to another. We read in the book of Joshua that Abraham's family served other gods not the true God. His calling was an act of grace. They were called out of this state. Therefore, it was a call of grace and it was a call of mercy. 
The call was not from righteousness to righteousness, but from disobedience to righteousness. God had a plan. It was set, and he was working it out according to his wisdom. Each step is carefully recorded for us to see and to understand that we had not been abandoned, but were still the central focus of his act of creation, just as it was at the beginning. To Abraham, a promise was made, a great and marvelous promise, one that would be realized in and through his descendants. But as time drew on, it became harder and harder to see how it could come about. His wife was barren, and under normal conditions of life, it would seem that things would not turn out as they were expected to. But Abraham believed God, and he remained faithful despite those barren years. Eventually, the time came when it was seemingly impossible that the first promise could come to pass. But the Lord took him outside in the night and asked him to count the stars if he could but number them. The whole host of heaven was there before his eyes, and the Lord promised him that his descendants would be such as that which he beheld. The next words say, and he, meaning Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, meaning the Lord, accounted it to him, meaning Abraham, for righteousness. In believing the unbelievable and in trusting what seemed impossible, the Lord credited Abraham with righteousness. The Lord is pleased when his word is accepted at face value and believed as true. Eventually, Abraham did have a son, a son of promise named Isaac. From Isaac came another son of promise, Jacob, who is Israel. And from Jacob came a collection of sons, all who were granted the promise of Abraham. Collectively, they would be known by the name given to their father, Israel. It is this unique and set-apart family who would continue the marvelous march towards the fulfillment of God's plan. The resolution of the problem would come through them. Their history is chronicled, and each step of the way, God's guiding hand is seen often in the foreground, and it is never lacking in the background, directing the affairs of Israel towards an ultimate goal. Certainly, they had no idea what lay ahead, but we can look back on history and see it with such clarity that it's really astonishing to consider. Seemingly, random events come together to form the most marvelous tapestry as the years of Israel unfolded before them. Finally, when the time was right, it was just the perfect time, God began to use them to display his glory in the world. The stories of their redemption from Egypt, their passing through the waters of the Red Sea, and the marvelous events which led them to the foot of Mount Sinai would be counted as mere fairy tales unless we knew that God was behind them. But he was, and the stories are recorded so that we can be assured that Israel's history is not an aberration, but a carefully sculpted plan with a definite and marvelous purpose. There at the foot of Sinai, the Lord gave them his law. He gave them his instructions for a place where he would dwell among them. He also gave them ordinances for how they could approach him and how they were to conduct their lives in his presence. Each detail demonstrated that the problem would, in fact, be resolved. He was there among them, and they could live, and in fact, they would live if they adhered to his precepts. This was explicitly stated to them when he said these words. This is from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. <coughs> to live is to not die. The promise is clear. If a man does these things, he will live 
by them. The life that was lost in Adam could be obtained once again through this marvelous law which the Lord set before the people. Life, not death, was possible. The resolution to the problem was now available. In being obedient to the Lord's word, life, yes, certainly eternal life could be obtained. This is what the word says, and this is, in fact, the word of the Lord. A cross is there on the hill of Calvary. It is a sign of God's love to the people of the world. On that cross, Jesus died for you and for me. The greatest display of love ever was on that day unfurled. Oh, that Christ would die for sinners like us. How deep is the love of God for this to have come about. Wondrous is the giving of his own son, Jesus. So take hold of the promise, stand fast, and do not doubt. Christ died and into the grave he went. Had death won? A lifeless body seemingly the end of the story. But no, death could not hold the sinless son. He burst forth from the grave in radiant glory. Our third thought today is it is finished. With the giving of the law, everything that was lost could be restored. At least that's the way it appeared on the surface. But by digging deeper into the law and what it was showing us, it became evident that there was a problem. It was the same problem that had been since the very beginning, and that problem is sin. The law made the promise that the one who did the things of the law would live by them. But what became evident right away, and what continued to be more evident with each passing year, was that nobody, nobody could do the things of this law. Instead of bringing life, it only brought death. The argument goes like this. If there is no law, then there can be no violation of the law. In fact, if a person wouldn't know what something like coveting was without the law being told to them, don't covet. But as soon as the law is given, sin then takes the opportunity through the commandment to produce the desire to covet. Without a law, there is life. But when a commandment is given which is supposed to give life, it instead brings death. Sin uses the commandment to deceive, and through that comes death. This is the dilemma of the law. If a man does the things of the law, he will live by them. But in the giving of the law, sin is stirred up, and he dies by that same law. Think of Adam and Eve. They were given one law. And what is more, even the very mediator of the law was exposed to this truth. He had the knowledge of good and evil, but sin used that knowledge to bring him death not life. The record of this truth stands in the eventual death of Moses, of Aaron, and of every other person who ever lived under this law, high priest or layman alike. The law which promised life did not deliver it. Instead, it continued to produce death. Was there nothing that could free them from this body of death, which indeed it was, a body of death? The people of God, selected from among the nations of the world, given great and enduring promises, and among whom dwelt the Lord God, and who sanctified them by his presence, could not obtain the life they sought through the law they were given, despite that law being right there with them, and which was intended to guide them. And if they, chosen and set apart, could not obtain life, then how could anyone else, not even of their line, hope to find it? What was the answer? What is the answer? To where do we turn in order to find life? Or is it all futility ending in death? If so, 
Why delay the inevitable? But have we forgotten the promise? Have we been so consumed with our own works under this law that we have failed to remember what the Lord said to the deceiver? And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord promised that the serpent's head would be crushed, but it wouldn't be one of us who would do it. Instead, it would be the seed of the woman. What that means was long misunderstood. Eve thought it was talking of herself. When she had Cain, she cried out, I have acquired a man from the Lord. She thought that she had a child that would handle the problem and restore her to paradise. She even claimed that the child was from the Lord, as if in a resounding cry of victory. However, it wasn't long before she realized she was wrong. With the birth of her son Abel, there was no cry of victory. When she named him, it was with a sense of despair. Life was a passing breath, and Abel reflected that futility to her. With the continued line of people from Eve, there is often the talk of the seed which would continue on. The daughters of Lot wanted to preserve their father's seed to find life through it. They wanted to keep the seed alive through him. David was promised that his seed, one who would come from his body, would build a house for the Lord and would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This theme is repeated numerous times, showing that the seed of the man was needed to bring in the eternal promise, but that promise still needed to be fulfilled in the seed of the woman as well. It is rather confusing to consider when looking forward. However, we today are not looking forward. We're looking back, and the picture is clear. The failures of Israel were each a lesson and also a stepping stone to the success of God. The law promised life to one who would do the things of the law, but the nature of man made it impossible for him to do those things of the law. And so God handled the problem for man by becoming a man. In order to do this, the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, overshadowed a virgin woman of Israel. She, being a descendant of those to whom the promises were made, was to be the human receptacle for the incarnate word of God. It was he whose coming had been promised 4,000 years earlier. The prophets spoke of him, and the Lord testified through them in his word that the things he would accomplish would come about and the glory that would be revealed through him. As we are told by John, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In being born of a woman, but not of a man, he was truly and fully man, but also truly and fully God. But in this state, he was born as a man without sin. As sin passed from father to child, and as all humans are born of both a father and a mother, all humans inherit sin. However, as he was born of a woman, but not of a man, he inherited no sin. His father being God meant that he was born in a state of sinlessness, and yet he was born with the knowledge of good and evil. In his sinlessness, he could handle that knowledge as no man born in sin could. But there is more. He was also born under the law of God, being a citizen of the people of Israel. Therefore, with his unique ability to do the things of the law, the promise of Leviticus 18 verse 5 could be realized in him. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. 
I am the Lord. He is a man, is he not? Yes, he is a son of Adam through Mary. And he has the ability to keep the statutes and judgments of the Lord, does he not? Yes, being the Lord God incarnate, he was fully capable of accomplishing this. In doing the things of the law, life would thus be the result. This is why the gospel writers give such minute detail concerning the life of Jesus. They were chronicling the marvel of the person who came and dwelt among them, showing us that he was qualified and capable of the task, and also showing us that he, in fact, performed what he was called to do. Each step of the way, his obedience to the law and to his father is very carefully recorded. But this record isn't for him to revel in. It is for us to believe in. The Lord doesn't need the word to be the Lord or to accomplish his task. But man needs the word to understand the work of the Lord in accord with the word. And so the word is given. In the Gospels, we see the fulfillment of everything that was spoken of by the prophets, even since the very beginning. Every word that they wrote was to lead us to an understanding of who would come and what he would do. In this, we would then know that he was the one spoken of. He said as much to the people of Israel. From John chapter 5, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And then he said something that truly revealed what he had come to do. In the next verse, he said, But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. In coming to him, they could have life. The life promised in Leviticus 18, verse 5, was to be found in him. This is what the gospel writers recorded, and this is what they testify to. The fulfillment of the scriptures is found in Jesus. And in fulfilling them, life was to be found as well. He told the leaders of Israel this, but they couldn't grasp it. They couldn't believe it. They, the very people who maintained the oracles of God, failed to accept the truth of God contained in those oracles. However, their unbelief in no way nullified the faithfulness of God. He spoke, he accomplished, and his word stands as a testimony of what he alone has done. And so, in being born sinless into the people bound to the law, in living without sin under the law, and in his death without sin, he thus died in fulfillment of the law. The one who was promised at the very beginning willingly came, voluntarily surrendered himself, and allowed the beings that he created to take his life so that they could live. Tell me that's not incredible. Each of the four Gospels details the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Each gives details from the writer's own perspective, and they record the scene in their own words while highlighting what they were inspired to write. The Gospel of John records the crucifixion in the 19th chapter of his book. He focuses on several prophetic fulfillments of Scripture, as do each of the other Gospels. But John says something differently than all of the others. Beginning in the 28th verse, he says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, 
it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. John notes that Jesus knew that all things were accomplished using the word tetelestai. The word is in the perfect tense of the word teleo or fulfilled. John then says that in knowing that all was perfectly fulfilled, that Jesus said, I thirst in order that scripture might be teleoti or fulfilled. It is the aorist tense of the word teleao. It indicates working through the entire process in order to reach the final phase. If one thinks of pulling out a pirate's telescope one stage at a time until it's fully stretched out at maximum capacity, that's the idea of what John is saying. It then notes after Jesus received the sour wine that he said his final words, tetelestai, or it is finished. It's the same word as at the first, teleo, and it is again given in the perfect tense. It is finished completely and wholly. It is done. What is being said is that Jesus had come and fulfilled every single thing necessary to undo the work of the devil. He had fulfilled every requirement of the law. He had taken the full weight and measure of God's wrath in fulfillment of violations of the law, and he had thus prevailed over the law not merely in and of himself, but for any and for all who would accept what he had done. The word teleo signifies a payment. This is why the word is translated as finished. When a debt is paid, the payment is fulfilled. The law of God demanded a payment for violations of that law. Adam broke the law, though it was but one law, and it was in the negative. You shall not. Because of this, a payment was due. The people of Israel violated God's law time and time and time again, but just one infraction of the law broke the entire law, and thus a payment for violating the law was due. In Christ's fulfillment of the law through his death, the payment was made. But unlike the sin offerings which were prescribed under the law, which could not take away sin, Christ's payment could. The animals which were sacrificed under the law only looked forward to a more perfect sacrifice. They temporarily stayed the wrath of God that only Christ could perfectly and eternally take away. Jesus knew the point when his work had fulfilled the law. And so John notes that he then said, I thirst so that scripture could be fulfilled. The question is, if all was fulfilled, then why did Jesus say, I thirst in order to fulfill scripture? The answer must be taken both literally and spiritually. Jesus literally thirsted. The 22nd Psalm, which Bob read a while ago, it's a psalm about the cross, says, my tongue clings to my jaws. In response to that, the 69th Psalm then says, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. This literally came to pass. But Jesus' cry was more intimate than just a physical thirst. In the 42nd Psalm, we see the fulfillment of what he was referring to. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The time had come, the work was complete, and Jesus longed to return to the living God from whom he came. The debt had been paid, and the tortures of his mortal life were no longer needed. We can know that this is correct because even after his death, his lifeless body was still used to fulfill scripture. 
in the piercing of his side and in the not breaking of any of his bones and so on, John says that scripture was again fulfilled. Here's what it says. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who had seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The fulfillment of the payment is what Jesus understood was completed. And the thirsting of the Lord for his God is what he desired. When one drinks, it is to prolong life. But in Jesus' case, it was to show that despite taking that which could prolong his life, he still voluntarily gave it up. It was not taken from him. Instead, he yielded of his own will because of his thirst for his God. The redemption of man had come and the payment was complete. But in understanding that, we must still have a final explanation of what that means. The law says that the man who does the things of the law shall live by them. It is a promise. But we have also seen that none can meet the demands of the law. And so what does Christ's life and death mean to us? It goes back to the doctrine of substitution. Christ died as the animals at the temple died as a substitute. In his death, we can have our sin transferred to him. As a substitution was part of the law, and as he fulfilled the law, then he must be an acceptable substitute for any who desire his death in their place. In that death, sin is atoned for. And as he died in fulfillment of the law, then to God we die with him in the transfer of our sin. Through the law, we thus die to the law, and we move from Adam to him. As we die to the law, then the law no longer has mastery over us. And as the law is what brings death, then death itself no longer has mastery over us. The deceiver can no longer deceive. The devil is defeated, and death is swallowed up in victory. How do we know that this is true? It's the reason that we're here today. Christ didn't just die for our sins and stay in the grave. No, instead he defeated death itself because he had no sin of his own. Death is the result of sin and life is the result of obedience to God's law. And so death could not hold him. And as we are in him, being counted as justified before the law, death can no longer hold us. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the defining moment in all of human history. For those who receive what he has done, there is but one outcome, that we too will be resurrected unto eternal life, and we too will be restored to that paradise which was lost to man so long ago. I hope that today you will take the time to read the final two chapters of the book of Revelation. For any and all who will but come, Jesus Christ has shown us in his word the glories which lie ahead for us. If you have never received him as your Lord, asking him to forgive you and grant you eternal life, today is the day, folks. 
don't wait another moment, but simply call out and he will lead you back home to where we originally were intended to be. Now we do prophecy every week in this church and there's a reason why we do it is because we believe the Bible is true. And in this church, in just a few years of doing prophecy updates, we have actually seen things fulfilled that the Bible said would happen thousands of years ago. Now, if it's that reliable to tell us something that was written by some guy sitting there with a pen and a piece of parchment in Israel, in the desert, thousands of years ago, if it's that reliable that we can say, this today fulfills that, how much more reliable is what we read about Isaiah in the 53rd, 52nd and 53rd chapter, speaking of Jesus Christ, that Jewish people that don't even know who Jesus is can hear that read to them and say, well, we know that that's speaking of him from their own words that they are not even allowed to read in the synagogue. That is the forbidden passage. They're not allowed to read it because it points so clearly to Jesus Christ. How sure is this word and how unsure are you about the God that has sent his son to die for you? How little faith you have to believe one and not the other but rather have faith. Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and came out of the grave and you will be saved. And that is what God asks of you. He doesn't ask for any miraculous thing. He doesn't ask you to do wondrous, marvelous things that will impress him. He created us. He knows what impresses him and it ain't us. It's Jesus. And if we just simply believe in what he did through Jesus, he will have fellowship with us once again. He'll spread out a table and the redeemed of the Lord will dine for all eternity in his presence. I can't wait for it. And I hope that you are at that table with me some wonderful day because of this great Lord who gave himself for us. Our closing verse today comes, it's a long one, comes from 1 Corinthians 15. It's verses 50 through 58. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption, come smell my breath if you want to know corruption, nor does corruption inherit in corruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He's speaking to believers only here. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin, the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Okay, next week is Leviticus 3, it's verses 1 through 17. Man, we're talking about the offerings that prefigured Christ. We're right in the middle of them right now. Peace with God. Better than even a diamond ring. It's entitled the Peace Offering. That'll be your fourth Leviticus sermon. And I'll tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Though paradise was lost, he offers us access to it once again through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So call on him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you 
and through you. Okay? Got a poem for you based on 1 Corinthians 15. It's called The Celebration of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel which was preached to you. It is also the one you received and on which you stand. It is the gospel of salvation, providing life that's new and which will carry you to the promised holy land. What is delivered to you is what was before received, that Christ died for our sins according to God's word. He was buried and he rose, and so we have believed, and many witnesses testify to this message you have heard. Now, if Christ has preached that he is risen from the dead, how can some among you say that the resurrection isn't true? If there is no resurrection after Christ was crucified and bled, then our faith as well as yours is certainly askew. And if so, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have wrongly testified of this mighty deed. And our faith is futile. No heavenly streets we will trod. And we are still dead in our sins, fallen Adam's seed. Even more, those who have fallen asleep in the Lord are gone. And we are the most pitiable creatures the world could ever look upon. But indeed, Christ is risen from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And as death came through one man, Adam, our federal head, so Christ will make all alive. Our souls he will keep. But there is an order to the resurrection call. Christ was first the pattern for the rest when he comes. When he does, he will make a shout out to us all, and we will rise as to the sounds of heavenly battle drums. Then comes the time when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, when all rule, authority, and power have come to an end. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, never more to bother. Then the Son will to the Father eternal rule extend. But you ask, what will we be like after our time of sleep, after we have been buried in corruption's pit so deep? Our body is sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power, the resurrection story. The first man, Adam, became a living being, it is true. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, life to me and you. And as was the man of dust created so long ago, so are those likened unto him, also made of dust. And as the man, the Lord from heaven, you know, that we shall bear his image for eternity, just as we've discussed. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit that which is incorrupt. But we shall all be changed, and so heavenly streets we will trod. In the twinkling of an eye, the change will be abrupt. When the last trumpet sounds, we will be taken to glory. We shall all be changed, completion of the gospel story. Where, O oh death, O oh where is your sting? When Christ our Savior, us to himself, does he bring? Where, O oh Hades, O oh where is your victory? When Christ translates his children to eternal glory. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin, the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord. My beloved brethren, be steadfast in all you've heard and saw, and cling confidently to God's eternal word. Know for certain that your labor is not in vain, be of good cheer. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, how good you are to us to have done what you did. How marvelous is this story that is so reliable. It's so accurately woven together that even the movement of the stars doesn't compare to the perfection of what you've told us in your word. The intricacy of the DNA molecule, which is far beyond anything we could reproduce in our own attempts doesn't compare even even a hint compared to your word the 
delicacy of the bumblebee and the beautiful flowers which adorn the the walks that we pass by without even looking at if we stop and ponder them how beautiful they are and yet they don't compare at all to your word none of these things none of these things compare to what you have told us describing to us the person of Jesus Christ our lord because he came from you and all beauty comes from you and he is the source of all beauty so everything we see no matter how glorious it is does not compare to the smile upon his face and may we be pleasing to you and call on Jesus and be forgiven of our sins and be willing to bow our knee to you now before our time of death comes and we will for all eternity look upon that beauty that glory which stems from you and which is revealed in Jesus help us to be wise and not to throw this life away on vainless pursuit Lord it is a life of toil it is a life of pain and trouble and sorrow and we did it to ourselves but you have been willing to rectify that and we thank you for that how good you are to us we commit the lord's table to you with its true significance being fulfilled on this day that we remember from 2000 years ago and may the fulfillment of that in its entirety be very soon come soon lord jesus so that we can look upon you for all eternity amen <music>